The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Your headlines this hour. Oil prices jump to a three-year high as the OPEC Plus meeting ends in stalemate. Talks end with producers at odds over output hikes and the Biden government calling for a, quote, compromise solution. Asian markets are mixed as tech worries weigh on Hong Kong, with reports emerging that Chinese regulators suggested DD delay its US IPO. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson announces plans to lift almost all COVID restrictions after two weeks, but at the same time issues a chilling warning. We're seeing cases rise fairly rapidly. We're seeing rising hospital admissions and we must reconcile ourselves sadly to more deaths from COVID. And French train maker Alstom warns of significant negative cash flow for the year due to its Bombardier acquisition, but looks to lay out a plan to return to profit. So very good morning, everybody. Let's start with this oil story. So prices jumping to a three-year high after OPEC Plus producers. Let me just step out of the way. You can get the full benefit of this wonderful graphical representation of the performance that we've seen on the uh, oil price. And uh, this is a live chart, so it's changing as I'm talking. But ultimately, what we've got here is producers walking away from several days of talks as they fail to reach an agreement. The United Arab Emirates refusing to back a supply deal with its, without its own conditions being met. Now, the OPEC Secretary General, Mohamed Barkindo, said that a new meeting date will be decided in, quote, due course. The White House weighing in, of course, with the Biden administration calling for a compromise solution. Oil expert and IHS market chairman Dan Jurgen told CNBC the current disagreements highlight conflicting interests between these Gulf neighbors. I think not a price war. And I think at the end, all these countries will look at their own interest and uh, look at, uh, uh, and obviously the, at the end of the day, this is all about revenues. I think uh, the UAE is more focused perhaps on energy transition and is, you know, embarked in a program to continue to raise its capacity very fast. Saudi Arabia has indicated now that it wants to do it too, because among other things, they both see them filling a vacuum that will be created by the kind of reduced investment from the traditional uh, international majors. Well, Hadley Gamble joins us with more on the story. And Hadley, you had a terrific interview in your program with uh, a U.S. energy spokesman. And I think there must be a lot of frustration in the United States at the moment because it is American drivers who are feeling the pinch here up at $3 a gallon. 
Absolutely, Jeff. That's exactly what I asked him off the top of that interview. You know, how bad is this for U.S. consumers? And are you surprised that the Biden administration waited until Monday to publicly uh, call out um, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, as well as Russia and, and call them into some kind of potential agreement, try to push them there? Um, it's interesting to note, I think, that uh, a few weeks ago, frankly, back in April, the energy secretary from the United States had had leaned on Saudi Arabia uh, to, to keep prices within you know a range. But it seems as if these talks, as they went off the rails over the weekend, didn't have that much direct input from Washington. And it seems as if we're seeing that result. I asked Andrea about that. Listen in. You could very easily see oil hitting $100 a barrel, uh, potentially even higher. Uh, and, and the flip side of that is equally uh, uh, possible as well, Hadley. I mean, if there isn't any agreement on production and uh, countries tend to go off and do their own uh, thing or do their own production, you could have a collapse of oil prices, uh, much as we saw in 2020. That was due, obviously, to a, a decrease in demand, but we could have production numbers that could force numbers down. And that would be detrimental to the producers here in the United States. I mean, essentially what you have here is a crisis uh, for OPEC that you really haven't seen in years. And following this very closely, at least from the UAE and Saudi Arabia perspectives, for the UAE, this is about the billions of dollars that they've spent in spare capacity. This is about the billions of dollars they've spent on the transition, as Dan Jurgen was saying. I mean, you've got to remember um, that the head of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company is also the clean energy czar who's working with John Kerry uh, to, to change uh, the narrative coming out of the UAE, frankly. So you've got a lot of different things at play here. And I think it's very, very important to point out that while um, the UAE and Saudi Arabia want to appear to remain um, friends and, and Gulf allies and brothers, if you will, this is all part of a widening narrative, the, the, the divergence of the UAE's policy with regards to their economy and the Saudi policy with regards to their economy and even bigger issues. Um, you've seen the UAE projecting a soft power over the last several years that's increasing. They have a very, very strong relationship with those in Washington. They were very close to the Trump administration with the Abraham Accords and other things. You also see them now very close with the Biden team when it comes to climate change and that energy transition. And the Saudis have been on the back foot for several years now. And I think you're starting to see that playing out um, more overtly, if you will, with the fact that the UAE energy minister was very, very strong in those comments to me over the weekend. He said this is an unfair deal and we're pushing back. Jeff? Hadley, I just wanted to weigh in on the power struggle here because it's not just the UAE that's been arguing for the higher baseline. Other countries, the likes of Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, Kuwait, Nigeria have also requested uh, higher baselines here as well. And, you know, you yourself, I think, have been pointing out even in re recent months that it's been a very dominant uh, approach by the Saudis and Russia at the table when it comes to decisions. Is this just a natural power struggle then, a rebalancing as these other OPEC members try and reassert themselves at this stage? And, you know, in future in other crises, if you want to have quick reactions, quick decisions, then surely you need to take into consideration how these other members feel at this point. No doubt about it. And I think that was really speaking um, to to the bigger issue, as you say, that the UAE minister was, was seemingly the only one who felt that he had um, the leverage to, to go up against Saudi Arabia and Russia. But listen, at the end of the day, His Royal Highness Prince Abdulaziz, he's a great negotiator. This is a man, of course, who's been leading OPEC over the last couple of years. He has a, an extensive history um, of being part of this organization, of, of leading the Saudi narrative for years now. So no doubt about it, he's working very, very hard behind the scenes to find some kind of a compromise here. But also, it's part of the bigger geostrategic narrative uh, of Saudi Arabia and Russia as well. So, you know, it's a big question as to what leverage um, Saudi Arabia has at this point. And it seems as if the leverage is coming from the Russians. And that's essentially what we heard from the energy secretary as well.
Hadley, I don't like paying the prices, but I do have some sympathy with the position that these countries find themselves in. The narrative at the moment from the Biden administration, the energy plan is all about reducing carbon emissions. It's about removing oil from the energy mix here. Meantime, a lot of talk about stranded assets, a lot of talk about whether the Chinese economy uh, is starting to roll over here. And we know that the Chinese are critical for that energy demand story here. I know it sounds rather tough to say it, but to what extent is the Biden administration reaping what it sows by so loudly trumpeting the pace at which this transition must take place. I mean, I think this is interesting. It speaks to the politics as well. Um, I mean, this is one of the big issues that uh, the Biden-Harris administration got elected on, which was the switch to clean energy, right? And they had a lot of momentum going in uh, to the early days in office. They were making these decisions left and right. Um, and, And President Biden made no secret of uh, what he wanted to do in the clean energy space, right? But as you say, this is a question of doing a complete and utter role reversal from what we saw previously of four years under Donald Trump, this whole energy narrative, the switch uh, to U.S. energy independence, the myth, if you will. But the fact that they were so quick to turn it on its head, no doubt had implications um, uh, for, for, frankly, the conversations that the OPEC plus group is having, because it seems as if they've been left to their own devices. And I, as I asked Dan Briette about this, I said, how worrying is that for U.S. consumers that the White House doesn't overtly come out until Monday to talk about this? I mean, does it seem as if, you know, a hands-off approach might not be the best one? Because this has implications for U.S. energy security, U.S. national security as well. And he was pretty, pretty dark on that. He said, listen, you know, it does have implications and it is very very, very worrying. And what you want to see is the White House engaged at all levels. I mean, obviously, our system in the United States is very different from OPEC plus, and we can't directly engage at that level. But there should always be conversations happening at the White House level as well. Hadley, thank you very much for the coverage there. I want to segue off uh, from the oil markets to what we're seeing elsewhere across the broader region from Asia to the early start here in Europe today. What we've got uh, read, the tone that's marching through these markets driven by a number of different factors, starting with Hong Kong. And this is uh, an overweight from some of the the big uh, technology names that are being sold off. You can see this pushed down by about a third of a percent. Steeper falls earlier in the trade as concerns around antitrust and the regulation coming through from China continue to weigh on the back of DD. And uh, of course, uh, we were talking the headlines from that Wall Street Journal report that there had been some suggestions potentially from the regulator in China that DD delay its IPO will embarked upon self-examination of its network, a scrutiny that the regulator thought was necessary, but also concerns too about uh, whether there is now a pushback against monopolistic size. There are concerns that Tencent may not be able to consolidate a couple of the video streaming platforms. So all sorts of uh, fears around these big technology names weighing on the sector. Uh, The Chinese market trades lower in Australia. We've had a key decision there from the central bank. Today, the Reserve Bank leaving rates where they were as expected at 0.1%, but pairing back the bond buying uh, purchases and uh, the Australian market slightly softer. Patrick Green really just around Japanese stocks. So let's take a close up look at those big uh, Hong Kong names. Uh, Tencent itself up seven tenths of a percent, but Alibaba trades weaker. And you can see my Twang also trading just slightly firmer. The overall tech space, though, for Hong Kong is down 1.2%. The dollar, a slight weakening taking place on 
The dollar trades, uh, that is uh, supportive for sterling this morning, popping up uh, closer to the 139 range. Euro dollar 118.76, also up about a tenth of a percent. Uh, dollar on the back foot versus the Japanese yen and also the Chinese currency. Uh, US futures, I think we're all anticipating later on today what plays out on Wall Street. The market was shut yesterday for Independence Day. And don't forget, as we closed up shop before the long weekend, we did have some fresh records on markets. And this week, we're going to have to weather the minutes uh, as investors wait to see the detail on those conversations behind closed doors at the Fed, but also a focus now shifting to corporate earnings and what that's going to look like for August. Yeah, that'll, that'll be fascinating. So no more masks, no more social distancing, but plenty of nightclubs. The new UK, as Prime Minister Boris Johnson says, all of the COVID restrictions will be eased, but can Brits exercise personal responsibility? We'll be back. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. We will change the basic tools that we have used to control human behavior. We'll move away from legal restrictions and allow people to make their own informed decisions about how to manage the virus. From step four, we will remove all legal limits on the numbers meeting indoors and outdoors. We will allow all businesses to reopen, including nightclubs. We will lift the limit on named visitors to care homes and on numbers of people attending concerts, theater, and sports events. We will end the one meter plus rule on social distancing and the legal obligation to wear a face covering, although guidance will suggest where you might choose to do so, especially when cases are rising and where you come into contact with people you don't normally meet in enclosed spaces, such as obviously crowded public transport. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson there saying he expects the country will relax most COVID restrictions on the 19th of July. The decision comes after Britain delayed its initial plans to ease the rules in June due to a surge in Delta variant cases. Speaking at a news conference, Johnson said he expects to confirm the move next week, but warned this does not signal the end of the crisis. I want to stress from the outset that this pandemic is far from over. It certainly won't be over by the 19th. As we predicted in the roadmap in February, we're seeing cases rise fairly rapidly. There could be 50,000 cases detected per day by the 19th. And again, as we predicted, we're seeing rising hospital admissions. And we must reconcile ourselves, sadly, to more deaths from COVID. In these circumstances, we must take a careful and a balanced decision. And there's only one reason why we can contemplate going ahead to step four in circumstances where we'd normally be locking down further. And that's because of the continuing effectiveness of the vaccine rollout. Uh, 27,000 new cases yesterday. 
Mm. I think we all want Freedom Day, but we're not quite there yet, are we, yes. when it comes to the, the Delta variant and what's happening in this country. But it feels from the language that obligations just get removed, obligations on what people have to do to try and comply with government rules. And that also fits with employers, doesn't it? If you think about all the regulations across the board here, you've had so many people working from home. Does that mean automatically people are forced to go back into work? And how do they get back to work? You think a lot of companies have been quite supportive of employees who had been in the office and they have been paying for transportation, private transportation to and from. What happens to those obligations down the track? Does it become uh, back to public transport for all of these workers who've been working at home and suddenly back into work on public transport? I mean, it's hard to know how people feel in situations like this and what the level of comfort will be and whether the behaviour becomes more cautious rather than less cautious with some of these restrictions going. I think the answer is yes, isn't it? Clearly, the government has sent a signal here that it wants life to return to something that approximated the pre-pandemic era. Obviously, there are caveats to that, though, that um, we've, what, vaccinated? I think there have been 78 million doses. Uh, Not everybody's been vaccinated, of course, and some young people um, have only had one dose. Uh, So there is still some vulnerability. And of course, when it comes to the vaccinations itself, it doesn't mean you can't get COVID. It just lowers the risk that you'll get it and lowers the risk that you'll be hospitalised or that you will die from it at this stage. I think one of the one of the problems and why a lot of people will welcome this announcement has been the arbitrary nature of the rules anyway. I mean, the gathering of six, why six? Right. Why not four? Why not seven? Can't catch you know, COVID just, in six, apparently. Just very strange. <laughs> I, I think it the is only odd, thing, isn't it? I mean, broadly, I think most people will welcome this because if you go about uh, your business in the UK at the moment anyway, it, it feels as though a lot of people are not living with the restrictions um, changing their life at this point, at, at this stage anyway. But, but it does seem to me that there are some parts of this that have caused some concern. The chairman of the British Medical Association came out immediately after the announcement and said, it makes no sense to stop wearing masks. And if the masks provide some element of security, safety, protection, or it's just a visual reminder to people that there is still COVID around, because I know there's a lot of controversy as to whether they actually work or not, um, then maybe that's no bad thing if people are reminded that they still have to be careful about their own safety and other people's safety at this stage. But I think by and large, it's about time, given the degree of protection that there is in the community that we got back to something that looks like nor- normality, I think. Well, to go to, norm- to no masks is a long stretch too from after the, the recent advice from the United States to wear double masks if you're going to wear it for protection. Mm-hmm. So we seem to have reversed a long way. The other point is around what's happening at the decision-making level at number 10. I mean, we've seen this very strong criticism several weeks back from Dominic Cummings yeah. when he was there saying there was so much groupthink that there are very limited number of options that uh, ministers had to effectively they choose between and agree to. Is that the same situation now? Very limited options about what the Freedom Day is going to be, when it's going to happen. Is that what we're again looking at? Should we actually in reality have much stronger measures for longer? I mean, one of the other big points of discussion that we've had around the set week after week with various experts Mm. on the channel, and that has been that if you get a rise in infections, there's more chance of another variant and perhaps a variant down the track that also evades a vaccination. So is that a situation we want to be in or is there some responsibility at the country level where we do need to keep some of the restrictions in place for longer so we can tame the potential for variants? Uh, I mean, my personal view is that people should 
as they should have done all the way through this, take on board personal responsibility for their actions and how their actions may affect other people. But I know that there are not always people in the community who are willing to act in the best interests of not only themselves, but other people here. As for Dominic Cummings, <clears throat> does anybody still care what Dominic Cummings says? I mean, he clearly has a massive axe to grind here. And I think the last thing I read was that he said that Tony Blair would have managed the pandemic better. I mean, really, you know, are we... <laughs> has it come to this, that a special advisor to a Conservative Prime Minister is so full of spite that he now starts suggesting that a previous Labour Prime Minister, who I think for a lot of people um, didn't come through the Iraq war, uh, covered in glory, is now being held up as a paragon of virtue who would have steered us through the COVID crisis better. I don't think so, Karen, but that's, again, just my personal opinion. The other thing that I think is very bizarre here is the lack of consistency. And here's a story that just ties into this. Germany has now said it's going to ease travel restrictions with Britain following a meeting between Chancellor Angela Merkel and UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson. People who are fully vaccinated or who have antibodies can travel from the UK to Germany without having to quarantine, while self-isolation for those with a negative test has also been reduced. I seem to remember Angela Merkel was trying to close the Eurozone and the EU to British travellers just days ago. Right. So I'm not quite sure what has changed. Is Boris Johnson so charming... Uh, with the ladies and with others, that he has managed to convince Angela Merkel that now it's time for Germany, the powerhouse of Europe, the largest economy of Europe, to pivot to allow Brits in. Uh, I, I mean, I, you know, I know a lot of people like Boris Johnson and he seems to have had a series of marriages, so he's obviously attractive to somebody. But is he so attractive to Angela Merkel that he convinced her that she needs to pivot on her policy? Oh, maybe it was about the attractiveness of Britons in general as uh, they are welcomed with open arms to, to Germany. But I think one of the problems has been the reciprocality here, that you don't have this uh, lifting of the, the amber list countries for a lot of Brits at this point. You return back from wanting to quarantine or self-isolate and test and release. That scheme remains in place. And I, I would see this as a negotiating tactic from Angela Merkel for some of those southern European nations that uh, she wanted to have these restrictions lifted for summer. So it doesn't look like we're quite there yet. Uh, Japan is expected to decide on extending a quasi-state of emergency in Tokyo ahead of the Olympic Games amid fears of potential COVID outbreaks. According to media reports, government officials and event organisers are due to meet to discuss the measures later this week. Crowd sizes at the Games have already been limited, while Japan's Prime Minister has warned spectators may be banned completely. The Australian Formula One Grand Prix has been cancelled for a second year with organisers citing COVID rules and logistical challenges. The race was scrapped in March 2020 and had been pushed back to November this year in the hopes that travel restrictions would have eased by the fall. The Pfizer vaccine is not as effective at limiting the spread of the Delta variant as other coronavirus strains, according to a preliminary figure from Israel's health ministry. The study found the treatment is 64% effective at stopping infections, down from 94% against prior variants. But the data does indicate the vaccine prevents infections from causing hospitalisation or serious illness 93% of the time. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com.
or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.